You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's an ordinary guy burning down the house. It's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. <laughs> I can't get used to this lifestyle. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? Oh, man, I'm, I'm good. I'm getting over a lingering bloody cold yeah. that has uh, made it hard to sleep, eat, walk work <laughs> you know but uh i seem, to, I seem to be on the tail end of it yeah do a podcast right yeah uh some of the calls that went around this year were vicious but i have to spend a lot of time talking about it we all know why i have a question of why mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so it's been kind of making a comeback for i'm gonna say a couple of years it's never made the full fledged comeback that i think people were hoping for but, right. dude, I have been seeing a lot of mullets. I've been seeing a <laughs> ton of mullets. Like, way more than I should. And the amount that I should is zero. Are you starting to see, is there like a big swirling portal, time portal or something there by your house? Is that that where all these, these folks are sort of stumbling in from, from 1988 to 1993? Yeah. I don't know what is going on. And are like, they wearing bum equipment shirts and... Uh, <laughs> No, not, no, Bob Equipment was in the 90s. They're more wearing... Um, co-ed naked? They had co-ed naked. Uh, there you go. <laughs> they look like the bright, bright lime green sweatshirts. Uh, acid wash uh, jeans. Yeah, it's like, I just want to go up to the guy and go, dude, do you think that looks good? Because it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Um, I remember whenever mullets started falling out of fashion... I still have a book downstairs that our friend Jim bought me for Christmas one year called Fear of the Mullet or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my friend Greg and I, and Greg's a listener, so his ears just kind of popped up, I'm sure. But Greg and I, whenever digital cameras first became a thing, we used to like go around in searching of mullets. And if we saw somebody with a mullet, we would take their picture and then we would upload it to like the early versions of the internet. The mm-hmm. mullet of the week, we used to call it. Yep. <laughs> mullet, mullet of the week. And I remember one time he had posted a picture. He would always post like a picture with like a little story. And he had posted one and he goes, a split second after this picture was taken, the guy behind the counter and myself both realized that I forgot to shut the flash off on my camera. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why certain like fashions seem really normal and attractive for a time period. And then it's not a lot of years later when you look back and you think, good heavens, <laughs> how did any of these people find a mate? <laughs> And I'm How? always amazed at the ones that, like, come back. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, like, the the standalone mustache. I'm not going to say it. It's not as ubiquitous as the mustaches were in the 70s. Uh, or as notice. the most. Wait a minute. Wait. What's a standalone mustache? Is that like a mustache without a face attached to it? I don't understand what that means. I don't know how to break this down any further to simplify it. A mustache okay. without a beard or side. Oh, just, just an actual mustache. A standalone gotcha. mustache. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So, okay. So, like, you see that every once in a while, and it's like, guys, you don't know. You're too young to remember, but we, Generation X, fought real hard, real, real hard to get right. rid of these looks to make sure they never come back in the style. Just don't think you can bring it back all willy-nilly like this. I'm looking forward to the day. It's going to be about 10 years or so from now, 10 or 15, when the world looks back at pictures from the you know, the middle 
middle 2000s to like 2020 and they go, I don't understand. Did the Earth get invaded by Yukon Cornelius clones? Where did all these ridiculous giant beards come from? Yeah. Is everybody a lumberjack? And no, <laughs> they're not lumberjacks. They are just people with giant beards. That's a look I never attempted. No, I, it gets too itchy. Can't deal with nah, it. I, mine would never grow in that way to look <laughs> that, to look like that. And even then, I would look like the guy on the Quaker Oats box. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Twibley. Have you eaten your oats? Uh. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning January the 16th. But before we get the show started, Jeff, I have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. And you... My fine feathered friend, being a writer and a uh, fan of literature, you might know the answer to this question. I may. It's it's a literature question. What is the name of the first novel written in America by an American? Well, I will I will come up with an uh, an answer at some point of some kind by the end of the show. All right. So this is the week beginning, January the 16th, and uh, my extensive research shows me that it is your turn to start. Oh, hey, look at that. Uh, January 16th, 1970, an engineer named Buckminster Fuller receives the gold medal award from the American Institute of Architects for his work on what has come to be known as the Geodesic Dome and its application in the Geodesic Dome House. Have you ever seen a Geodesic Dome, Bill? I have zero clue what you're talking about. Like, this is confusing me more than standalone mustache is confusing you. I'm going to describe it in a way that makes it even more confusing, and then I'll give you an example that will clarify everything. All right. It is a sphere made entirely of triangles. How does that grab you? Oh! Wait, I see these, like, advertised in the middle of Facebook or in the middle of Instagram where you can buy them for, like, $3,000 and put it in the back of your house. You have them on, yes. like, I don't know, like, Wishers or whatever, yeah. Yes, oh, that's exactly yeah. what they are. It was meant to be a sort of sustainable, relatively easy to erect, a stable platform in which you could assemble a, a house around around the inside of that geodesic dome. And it, it covered a lot of square footage uh. and didn't need interior support walls because the triangles that made up the dome part supported the, ce- the roof and the ceiling. Yeah, you just get a box in the mail just full of triangles. What the hell? <laughs> Holy mackerel. We're going to be making some triangles. <laughs> oh, wait. Now that I think about it, isn't Epcot Center theoretically one of those words? The, the, and I'm not going to try to remember what it is. The, the dome at Epcot is, in fact, yes, a geodesic dome. It, yeah, Spaceship Earth. There you go. You also see them uh, in places more recently as like college observatories or like NASA observatories also use geodesic domes as their their domed rotating area where they can put a telescope. Now, didn't this guy also like have a car or something that was crazy it, too? In the 1930s, he invented a car called a Dimaxion, which was based on the same principles as the geodesic dome. So while it was teardrop shaped and only had three wheels... It was more like a, like a minivan than a minivan kind of is now. But they were stable but not safe. And during... <laughs> yeah, That sounds so, exactly like my ex-girlfriend. Keep in mind, I don't think they were any less safe than other cars in the 1930s, which was pretty much you were taking your life in your hands as soon as you touched the keys. What was the name but of it? I want to look it up. The Dimaxion. And the Dimaxion had a, an engine that was inside the, the car... Well, that's where they belong, uh, where, Jeff. Where the I people a, sat. I have a <laughs> car just like that. Oh, wait. It's, oh, it's inside the cabin? It's inside the cabin, yeah. It was mid-engine, almost like a... I am looking like at a, it right now, Jeff. It yeah. looks like... It looks like you put a, like an airsoft and a fish. <laughs> oh, my God. This thing is so weird looking. The benefits of the Dimaxion were that it, it had a super-duper low drag coefficient in wind tunnel testing. Yeah, I was about to say, it looks pretty aerodynamic. Uh, and it was stable because the frame used the principles of the geodesic dome, so it didn't need super giant heavy frame rails and other things for the like the A pillar and the B pillar and the C pillar because the triangles provided that st- the rigidity that the structure needed. Unless you crashed it into something. It looks like it runs on like mumpers. <laughs> it does look like that. It looks like <laughs> it should have it looks like it should have like fins on the back like a bomb. <laughs> it does well it has one on top, so. 
It does. Yeah, but he it's just, uh, he's the two on the side, so it looks like a Buck Rogers car. <laughs> but it, he didn't get the award from the architects for the car. He got it for the geodesic dome uh, buildings, uh, which say, you can yeah, still I, buy plans for. I think when somebody dies within your invention, that's a disqualifier. <laughs> it does tend to tamp down the enthusiasm to give you an award for it. All right, moving on to January the 17th of 1984. In what became later known as the Betamax case, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that copying television programs for the purpose of time shifting, a.k.a. when you record your soap operas with your VCRs, you can watch them when you get home from work, does not constitute infringement of copyrights. It wasn't just time shifting. It was copying in general. The idea being that advertisements that sort of funded the program paid for the broadcast of the program. Right. And it was meant to be broadcast once. And if you copied it, all of a sudden you were, I guess, I don't know, taking money out of the the pocket of the broadcast company because there was less likely that you would watch a rerun and or that you could take it and duplicate it and trade it off with other people. And now all of a sudden you were technically broadcasting on a tape. The court didn't see it that way, though. Yeah. They said, no. Tape away. Go tape Magnum P.I. Go wild. So you want to uh, you want to guess who who led these lawsuits? Would it be NBC? No, actually, uh, for the first time of them not competing with each other, but working side by side, Walt Disney and Universal Studios. Oh, there you go. Yep. They both sued Sony. Uh, yeah, Sony the, of the Betamax. Right. Which was ironic because uh, the Betamax was the one that didn't take off. Right. They probably lost some, a lot of money in litigation. I mean, ultimately, sure. ultimately, they were found not guilty, but you still have to pay all those kind of court fees and stuff right. like that. It's not inexpensive to, to run that kind of a, a lawsuit. One of the people that actually testified on behalf of Sony was your friend and mine, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers showed up and testified that some television programs willingly allowed time shifting. Uh, you know, like he was saying, please record my show. You know, not every kid is going to be around when we're broadcasting. Right. So please record my show so that they can watch it at their own uh, convenience. I'm sure that sounded something like, won't you please record my show <laughs> and let the little ones, the little neighbors watch it at a time that they find pleasurable. <laughs> Don't you motherfuckers have enough fucking money? <laughs> it sort of set the stage for the technology that would go on to redefine how we interact with television from then on. Yeah. VCRs for sure, and then DVD that the could be DVRs. recorded on, and DVRs and TiVo and other things that gave you the ability to manipulate the television programs that you would watch outside of the broadcast time, and it changed Nielsen ratings and all kinds of stuff. In 2023... It is very, very rare that I watch live broadcast television, just like right. wrestling. And that, and even that, I don't watch the whole thing. I, I watched right. the, the first hour, and then I watched the remainder the next day. All right, moving on to the 18th. January 18th, 1943. American bakers are banned from selling sliced bread to the public. That sounds and- like the worst thing since... I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> right? People get super duper pissed off about this. And the ban is lifted in March of the same year. So that's only like three months. Yeah. This one didn't last long. It lasted less time than prohibition. So I guess, you know, people care more about sliced bread than they do about alcohol. Whenever I was reading up on this, I was like, okay, so they just sold regular bread rather than sliced bread. It's like. So we, we have to slice it ourselves? What 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 is the actual ban? What is the big yeah. deal? Well, I thought when you first brought it up, too, that because it was 1943, maybe it was because the bread, some percentage of bread that was baked had to be frozen or something and shipped to soldiers. No, what know? it actually turns out to be is that whenever you have sliced bread, there's a lot of opportunity for air to get in there because, you know, it's got a lot of holes now. Right. And you have to wrap them differently you have to the, there's more wrapping involved so right. in order to save on the paper at the time the paper because i mean plastic wasn't ubiquitous as it is the, now right so in order to save on the paper to wrap up the sliced bread they just weren't slicing it anymore right oh well that makes way more sense than like thinking there was a like a bread drive or something and <laughs> you know all you're already eating bread has to go to the soldiers overseas and it's all of a sudden these poor guys are getting like man this one's moldy and it's not even sliced 
<laughs> and that's when the inventors of Manila paper, ah, they, <laughs> they came like, I got the solution. And they're like, no, 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 we're just gonna, we're just gonna slice it up. That was before they were plastic bread bags, right? So that must have been they yeah. wrapped in paper or wax paper of some sort. So that's, that's interesting. Mm. Interesting uh, way to address a shortage and what's needed for the war effort. I know that they changed some inks for different advertising packaging and stuff at that time too, because the ink needed to be used to make clothing and or and or yeah. other stuff so there's like all kinds of weird like little things that that the u.s tried to do to save resources interesting yeah. give a silly buddy moving on january 19th 1935 cooper is incorporated sells the world's first men's briefs in oh. chicago and calls it the jockey later to be known as tidy whiteies i wonder why they call them briefs to begin with are you not expected to have them on for long? <laughs> is that it? Or is it just uh, because they're considerably shorter than, like, long underwear? Right. I don't know what the underwear fashion at the time was. I mean, you always see those pictures of, like, the men with, like, the full bodysuit underwear, right. you know? Yeah, the flapped uh, ass flap. Yeah. <laughs> Red ass flap flannel pajamas. Yeah. But, you know what I mean? Like, the almost like <laughs> the Mormon's magic underwear there. Right. Um but yeah, it's like a full bodysuit, long john, like kind of a thing. And it must have been, dudes finally realized, like, you know what? Wearing a onesie underneath all my clothes, and with all these snaps around the crotch, yeah. makes it hard to go to the bathroom. Not only that, I'm sweating like Tom Jones on the third <laughs> encore. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm sweating like I have malaria. Uh, <laughs> sweating like Nixon over here. Begs the question, Jeff. People want to mm. know. Are you a boxer or a brief person? I wear the combination of the two, the horrible, evil hybrid of underwear. I wear boxer briefs when I wear Ah, them. I prefer boxers, but the majority of my underwear is boxer briefs. I I had an injury that I don't want to discuss on the podcast uh, that prevented me from wearing boxers, even though I I prefer boxers. Mm -hmm. Um, I have since healed and I can wear boxers once again, but I, I still buy both i'll buy boxes ah. and i buy briefs uh boxer briefs but like the tidy whiteies and all that christ i remember buying them for something for whatever reason i had to buy a pack of tidy whiteies probably for some show or whatever i was doing i was in i needed them and i was like these are just weird like as an adult i think tidy whiteies is a cutoff age yeah i still have some that i wear it depends. Apparently, that I, cutoff age is fifty. So, <laughs> uh, it, for me, it's it all comes down to believe it or not, price. I'm st- I'll stand there and be like twenty six dollars for four pairs of underwear. Oh, come on! And then it's like, oh look, it, they've got regular briefs like tidy whiteies. Those are eighteen dollars for four pairs of underwear. So, yeah. I'm like that with socks. What I want to know is like, why is not wearing underwear called going commando? It's never. I've never seen a commando with no pants on. I, uh, I. Don't have that answer. <laughs> I don't see. Neither do I. People ask me, Jeff, do you wear underwear? I'm like, no, I go a Navy SEAL, which is where <laughs> I wear no underwear and only one sock. I go Green Beret. I go a Gurkha, which is uh, just a hat. <laughs> you know. I go Yakuza. <laughs> right. Yeah, I go Yakuza Enforcer. It's just a suit jacket. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 20th. January 20th, 1989. Metallica releases their very first music video onto MTV. It is for the song One, the first track, uh, first single from their album And Justice for All. First album they put out after the death of Cliff Burton featuring invisible bass player Jason Newstead. (laughs) Featuring alleged bass player Jason Newstead, yeah. Yeah, Jason Newstead was basically on the promotional shots. Uh, famously, he wasn't, he was very low in the mix. I'm not even sure he was there at all. I know yeah. he was pissed off about that. But at any rate, uh, Metallica at that point in time, this is 1989, yep. they had gained a lot of underground popularity. I know I had a lot of friends that were super, super into them, especially after the Master of Puppets album. And then, you know, like you had just mentioned that Cliff Burton, their uh, founding bass player, had passed away. So they had to take a couple of years to see what they were going to do. So they put out this new album on Justice for All. It was kind of like a big deal that they were going to have a, a music video on right. MTV. 
And it was, uh, it wasn't much of a video. It was a live, uh, not live, but like semi live performance, like a live in the studio, so to speak, with clips of an old movie called Johnny Gut is Gun kind of yeah. sewed in. Yes. You ever see that movie? Based on the novel by Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, I have seen the movie. Yeah, I've seen the it's movie. It's not a the- feel good film. Of no, uh, 1972. No, no. I, th- neither is the book. They're both. It was a book and a movie basically made to. Well, the book was written to protest war, and it was actually banned several times. Anytime America got into a war, the book got banned. It came mm-hmm. out in between World War One and World War Two, and then the movie, by the looks of it, I think was. I think that was like late 60s or early 70s. It was early 1970s. Yeah. Uh, so the story of the song, the story of the movie, is about a young man who steps on a landmine and it blows away most of him. He's armless, legless, and it removes his uh, his face from the chin just to below his eye sockets. Right. So he literally has no sense of anything other than like touch. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting story. Well done, Metallica, for for picking that song to. I mean, picking that story to write a song about and to make right. a video. Kind of a controversy with this. Do you remember this? Whenever um, Metallica got nominated for a Grammy for uh, yes. best. The year that they lost a Grammy winning, winning heavy metal artist, Jethro Tull. Yeah. Well, there's a thing. Because, like- <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's nothing that says heavy metal like a flautist. All right. So here's the thing. All right. One, the category wasn't. Heavy metal. The category yes. was hard rock and heavy metal. And two, Jethro Tull had an excellent album out that year. Three, Jethro Tull can be exceptionally heavy. And four, four Jethro Tull had no idea why they were nominated for that category. Yeah. If you talk to Ian Anderson, yeah, right. And four, the and Justice for All album, while it has some great songs on it, sounds like an open faced asshole sandwich. There's no bass. It's so tinny. It's a horrible mix. They need to go yeah. back and, and remix that album. That's assuming they can still find the tapes that have Jason Newsett's bass playing on it. Yeah. I, I feel bad. Like That's like hiring somebody that you know you're just going to torment. Like, why would you do that? Why would you hire a guy to be in your band and then do that to him? That sucks. I feel yeah. bad for Jason because like, he seems like a stand-up guy. Yeah, he was in uh, Flotsam and Jetsam. Um, yep. You know, a lesser-known metal band. You know, they gave him a seat at the table and then they just bullied them which is yeah kind of terrible well that all went out really well for metallica because they've made nothing but fantastic albums since then you know my friend just recently bought tickets like general admission tickets to their show which isn't for another year and a half it's like in the summer of 2024 and he paid 400 dollars each ticket yeah and i know somebody that bought seats you know so it's not general admission seats and he yeah. paid close to $800. So Metallica's not struggling for cash, that's for sure. No, 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 I don't think so. Well, I mean, you know, when they're single-handedly shutting down Napster, all the money just flowed right back to them because <laughs> their fans had to buy their CDs instead of downloading them from the internet. Yeah, that was anyway. a plan that worked out very well. Uh, here's another plan that worked out very well, Jeff. <laughs> on January 21st of 1999, in the War on Drugs, one of the largest drug busts in American history. The United States Coast Guard intercepts a ship with 4,300 kilograms. That's <laughs> almost five tons, Jeff, of yeah, cocaine. Yeah, 10,000 pounds. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. How, like, how do you package that? Like, it's sugar. That, that's not sugar. Yeah. No, no, it's sugar. See the label? Think of all the coffee grounds that they had to disguise it with. Right. Five tons, dude. That's almost, like I said, it's 9,500 pounds. So almost five tons of cocaine. I can't even get my mind around that. Never underestimate the power of people wanting to smuggle drugs into the United States. My favorite sort of news stories from the mid-90s were all the times that the Coast Guard intercepted like a homemade submarine. (laughs) And it would be like a boat that was held together with duct tape and super glue with a periscope. It was just under the water with a plank of periscope and a snorkel to keep the engine running. As it killed a bunch of, you know, trying to, it was nearly killing a bunch of mules with carbon monoxide trying to get 1,000 kilos of cocaine to Miami Beach. One of those periscopes you would make as a kid with like uh, paper paper towel rolls and mirrors. Almost there. (laughs) I've never done any drugs outside of like NyQuil. All right, let me me rephrase that. I've never done drugs as an adult outside of NyQuil. So 1999, and here we are in 2023, 
I'm going to guess that this didn't really work out all that well because there's still cocaine, isn't there? There, There is, in fact, still cocaine. Drugs still come into the United States on boats, mm-hmm. through ports, all over the place. Yes. Cocaine's not nearly as popular as it was in the 80s, which nah. is such a weird statement to make. Just think about, like, hey, here's a drug that's going to kill you. It's, it's way worse. Popular. Yeah, I, yeah, I it's got really... stuff that's way worse, yeah. Yeah. All right. Back on and cocaine, all you what you used to do is like give away your car. Now, <laughs> dead. Here's something that's super addictive, super expensive, and the high lasts for about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sign me up. All yes. right. Uh, and let's wrap up the week. January 22nd, 2002. AOL Time Warner, which is a newly formed company, filed suit against Microsoft in federal court seeking damages for harm done to AOL's business because AOL had partnered with Netscape. And Microsoft began giving away its competing Internet Explorer browser for free. Oh, I remember when all this was going on. This was Mm. like, I don't want to say early days of the Internet, but like early days of the ubiquitous. That's my word for this show. Usually I say colloquial a lot. But this this episode is brought to you by the word ubiquitous. (laughs) So, yeah, that, that was like the early days of like the ubiquitous Internet when like everybody had, oh, are you online? Of course I'm online. Right. Well, so yeah, there was only a couple of browsers around at that time. I remember Netscape, which everybody just called Nutscrape at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. There was Netscape, and then there was the Internet Explorer. So this and is then- right around the time that AOL was starting to experiment with partnerships with broadband companies and unlimited access. Yes. Because pre- previous to that, it was dial-up, and it was like $0.25 cents a minute after a certain number of minutes every month. Right, yeah. To I the remember- tune of $400 I paid at least once. And- at the time, Netscape was a standalone browser, but they had their business model was that they would sell to manufacturers who would then put their browser on a computer at the point of manufacture. So okay. Windows would be a thing. You remember you used to buy a computer where it would have all kinds of shovelware on it? Some of that shovelware was Netscape. Yep. Because I, they had I, a contract with Dell or Gateway or IBM or whatever. Right. I vaguely remember all this because I was not a part of any of that because right. – with the exception of the computer that I now have on my desktop over here, I had never purchased a computer in my life. Up until right. four years ago, I never purchased a computer. Every computer I ever had, I built out of Frankenstein parts. Right. So generally what happened was like you'd also have – you'd have like a, a manufacturer's documentation that said, hey, if you want to use the internet, open Netscape and go here and you can – so they paid – Netscape paid for all that. They got paid for that, right? They licensed it out to all these companies. And then Microsoft being Microsoft, I'm going to do my Bill Gates voice said, if we just give the browser for free, um, eventually no one will want to pay for the other browsers. And that's exactly what happened. So they started giving away Internet Explorer and making Windows recommend Internet Explorer for using the internet and make it tied to the Windows Explorer file system so that it was integrated and couldn't be removed that AOL and Netscape ended up suing for because now manufacturers not only didn't have to pay Netscape to put it on their machines, it already had a browser that was built in. So who cares? They don't have to do any documentation. It's all done in the help files for Windows. That must have been Windows 98 because I remember Windows 95 came with a separate disk of Internet Explorer. Right. And then Windows 98 was just a part of it. It was when they started giving it away for free. Yeah. As part of the operating system, that's that's when it was a that when it was pre-installed, right? You didn't have a choice, and then you couldn't uninstall it. The uninstaller wouldn't run and take it out because it was integrated with with Windows Explorer. So they used the same core files and other things. Right. Yes. Yeah. Ultimately, and what that- happened was they settled out of court. Microsoft paid seven hundred fifty million dollars to AOL, which wow. I'm sure they they spent on infrastructure and <laughs> advertising and sending out floppy disks to people in magazines. <laughs> And then slowly but surely, they'd cease to exist over a period of another like five or six years. Microsoft, on the other hand, uh, was very successful and had to repeat the same court case in France because in the EU, they were forced to unbundle Internet Explorer from their operating system completely. And they had to pay like $2 billion in fines in the EU too. Oh, I'm going to guess that uh, reverse engineering Internet Explorer out of the thing, you know, that's not something one guy did in the course of an afternoon. Exactly. I'm sure Bill Gates was like, Sacre blue. <laughs> and then, you know, it wasn't all that long before Chrome 
in the big picture, in the big time frame, whenever Chrome came out, I remember whenever Chrome first became a browser, you know, you'd click on Internet Explorer and then it would take, you know, a good 15 seconds to like load up. Yeah. And then Chrome, you hit it. It's done. It's open. There it is. So it was super fast for starters. Mm -hmm. It loaded up quick, and everybody, because the, the the front page of Chrome, there's nothing to it. You know, there's no right. plugins, there's no this, there's no that. The front right. page it's not, is just... It's not trying to make you read shit at the Microsoft network, or, yeah. you know. So, yeah, it loaded up real quick, and basically, that's what everybody wanted. It's like, look, I don't care about your plugins. I'm, I want to go, go to Pornhub. Right, right. <laughs> the thing with Internet Explorer, compared to Netscape, is that it was very similar in that Internet Explorer was faster than Netscape to from opening to uh, usability. And it yeah. was faster when you typed in a URL to display the URL. It was faster to, to render the content because it was streamlined and it was using some of the power that was built into the operating system already. Right. And Net, Netscape didn't have the, the ability to be. And that made it even more difficult for Netscape to compete because – Customers that were paying for licenses were like, yeah, you're two seconds slower than Internet Explorer for all of these applications. I remember advertisements for browsers that would talk about that. Look at how much longer it takes to load. <laughs> you know, this picture of a cat. Because that's what the internet was in 1999 and 2001. I'm sure Bill Gates was like saying, well, how about you just <laughs> don't use Windows? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Buy a Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. uh, meanwhile, right. he signs up and he buys like a, a third of the steak in Apple at that point. All right. So let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. Yes, let's. January the 16th, 1974, a model, a, Europe, uh, a British model, who brought along uh, with her a very <laughs> curious and almost problematic term, heroin chic. Yes. Her name was Kate Moss. And her name still is Kate Moss. Yeah, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, her name is still Kate Moss. She was very, 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 very thin. And I want to say she was like known for Versace and uh, I don't know if it was, it wasn't Calvin, Calvin Klein. Klein. Yeah, it was, was Calvin, it Calvin Klein. Klein? Yeah. yeah, she did the Calvin Klein uh, ads there, the, the black and white ones that were really uh, ubiquitous at that time. The, all the people that looked like they'd sold all their possessions off just recently. Yeah. She dated Johnny Depp for a bit, and she was actually on the short list for um, character witnesses, but I don't think she ever actually got called. Uh, no, she didn't. Uh, I'm looking at a fairly recent picture of her now from maybe about four years ago. Mm-hmm. She looks a lot healthier. You know, when, yes. when she was a teenager and young 20, she just looked so gaunt. So Yeah. <laughs> She looks a little healthier now. She was right at the point where people started to really examine how fashion was photographed and what the models were like and whether or not it was able to set realistic beauty standards. That's like really where that conversation started. It was right around where she was super popular, yeah. All right, next up. January 17th, 1927. Uh, Also uh, a one-time model and actress, American singer Eartha Kitt, who's probably most famous for the song Santa Baby. You son of a bitch. She's probably most famous for her voiceover in The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> I'm sure that's what it was. Yep. She was also one of the three different cat women on the 1960s Batman TV show. Yes. Yeah, she had that when she talked, yeah. Yes. My friend went to see her live. Mm-hmm. And obviously, before she passed away. Uh, she yeah, went well, to yeah, that's hard to see her live if she's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if she's dead. So he went to see her in concert. How's that? Ladies and gentlemen, Eartha Kitt's body. Yeah, and they did a uh, they did a meet and greet afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I told her that I loved her. And she said, oh, thank you, darling. I said, oh, my God. I, w- I would have killed or died to be, in, uh, to be there for that. Oh, my God. It's a thank you, darling. I love thank it. Thank you, darling. That's <laughs> very funny. Yeah, she's definitely a character. All right, moving on to the 18th. January 18th, 1933. Guy by the name of Ray Dolby, who was oh. the inventor of the Dolby noise reduction system for your home stereos. Ah, yes, high end stereo noise reduction and other technology. But that's yeah. really where, where I know him from is from having a cassette player in my car 
that if I didn't have the Dolby noise reduction on, it sounded like this when I was playing a tape. But if I had Dolby noise reaction reduction turned on when I was playing a tape, it sounded like this. <laughs> <laughs> Dolby noise reduction to my like uh I mean I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it, but to my ears it just sounded like they turned the bass up a little bit. That's all. Yeah, it filtered out certain wavelengths at the, the top end of the spectrum. Right, because uh, you would hit the Dolby button on your cassette player, and it'd be like, okay, now it's really bassy. Cool. I could have done that. And then Ray was like, if you touch that knob, I will sue you for every copyright packet. I think it was like a set of audio filters that were you were turning on yeah. that closed certain frequency bands or mitigated certain frequency bands with white noise. Yeah. He also won an Emmy Award. <laughs> First uh, contribution to the first video recorder in 1957. Oh. Yep. Next thing you know, Fred Rogers is over there defending his, his, uh, <laughs> his inventions. Yep. People are taping Knight Rider, and they're not <laughs> having to hear when they listen to Kit Talk. All right, moving on. January 19th, 1946, uh, American treasure and country music icon Dolly Parton. She's also an actress in some stuff. She was in uh, 9 to 5, and she was in Steel Magnolias and some other films as well. Oh, she was in Rhinestone with Sylvester Rhinestone Stallone. Rhinestone with Sylvester they Stallone. Call me Drinkenstein. It's a, not a very good movie, <laughs> but she was good in it. Yes. She's, yeah, uh, she is, you, you just nailed it at the beginning. She is a national treasure. Uh, she owns Dollywood, a theme park. She does, and she wrote I Will Always Love You, a song that... Sounds fantastic when she sings it. Yes. Less fantastic when other people sing it. During the pandemic, she donated a huge amount, a huge chunk of change donating to get the vaccines uh, in production. Yeah. The woman could do no wrong. I agree. Yeah. And apparently, she goes out in public very often and nobody recognizes her because uh, she doesn't wear her wigs when she goes out in public. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. And that is kind of like how you would notice her. So, yeah, she's got very much different hair underneath the wigs. Her big, big wig. Yes. Mm. I was wondering if we were going to make it through the whole segment without <laughs> mentioning her, her boobs. But I'm here we gonna... are. Here we are. Dollywood is set on huge tracts of land. Yes. Huge. Right. Huge tracts of land. January 20th, 1896. God. God himself. Uh, oh. <laughs> American actor and comedian George Burns. Whenever we were kids, George Burns was just known for being old. Yes. Like, he was just an old guy. He was an old comedian. But, yeah, his career goes all the way back into the vaudeville days and you know right. the early stages of Hollywood. And he didn't make a lot of movies until he was much older. Like His <laughs> acts were kind of popular on TV in the 1950s. But he never yeah. really – he didn't carry over into the 60s and 70s so much until he was guest starring and stuff or he was doing the film thing. And it was only after uh, his wife Gracie Allen died that he started making films. You're right, yeah, because they had a radio, they had did a lot of stuff together. They had the uh, they had the, the radio Gracie show. hour, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and the radio show, and then you know that carried over into television, right? But yeah, he did the Oh God series, Oh God, Oh God, yep. book two, and then Oh God, You Devil, and right. then he, I remember he did he the did film with Brooke Shields. Yeah, that's what I was just about to bring up. I can't yep. remember the name of it. I think it was called Just You and Me, Kid. I don't remember much about mm -hmm. it. I know I saw it. It was on HBO yep. a bunch. It was um, on HBO a lot when I was a kid, yes. Yep. I remember that's where I learned the word prestidigitator. Because <laughs> that was his job. He was a former retired prestidigitator, a sleight of hand man. And he oh. did a bunch of like weird sleight of hand magic tricks during the film. Oh, okay. I remember whatever... My life and his life Venn diagrammed over each other. I just remember everybody saying that he's going to live to be 100. And he did. He made it to 100 and passed away shortly thereafter. Right. All right. Moving on. January 21st, 1938. A man best known for his work as a disc jockey in the United States and the voice of sort of early rock and roll, Wolfman Jack. Oh, yeah. He was, like, probably the most famous DJ until, like, Rick D's, I guess. Yes. And unless I'm missing up my history, which is yep. entirely possible, he is, in his, like, 60s and early 70s time, was broadcasting out of, like, Los Angeles, but it was broadcasting from a station that was over the border in Mexico, so it could broadcast at super-duper high power. 
Yes. yes and it I was broadcasting super duper high power all over Southern California. Right. And that's how he became famous for being the voice of, of that rock and roll station. Yeah, the Wall of Voodoo have the Mexican radio song. That's probably, right. uh, if not about Wolfman Jack himself, uh, about that kind of... That practice. That practice, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Wolfman Jack. He had that very uh, voice that sounded like he was straining to talk, which is odd because that's not really a good voice for radio, is it? But It's, <laughs> it's very distinctive. Yes, if, if nothing else. He was actually playing himself in the movie American Graffiti, which we've talked about a number of times yes. on the show. He was in some other stuff, too, and he always became, at least in his in the later years, like like a celebrity gadfly. He would show up in tiny bit parts, usually as himself, you know, whether it was on a TV show or in a film or, or something else. He almost never played a character. It was, his character was always Wolfman Jack. Right. And also, like, during the 70s, he had the luxury of appearing on variety shows, of which there were no end to. Not nine million of them, yeah. I'm sure he showed up on Sha Na Na a couple of times as well. <laughs> All right. And then wrapping up the celebrity birthdays, January the 22nd, 1959, a girl who can spin my head right around anytime she wants, Miss Linda Blair. Her mother so socks that smell. Yes. Uh, I have had the opportunity to meet Linda Blair a number of times. She used to do the autograph thing over at uh, the haunted houses that I worked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a curious person. She's one, she's a, a very strict vegan and an animal lover. Right. And two, even though she was the star of one of the most terrifying movies in parentheses, if you're a Catholic. Uh, I was just going to say that. And so says the Pope. Yep. Uh, The Exorcist, even though she was, you know, the star of one of the uh, most popular horror movies of its time, she doesn't do well at the haunted houses. Why is that? Is it because she's vomiting pea soup all over the people that come see her? Yeah, no, she's very jumpy. She's a very uh, jumpy person. Oh. So... I saw her like walking, like before we opened, she's like walking and she's kind of like sticking her nose into the entrance of the house. I was like, can I help you with something, Miss Blair? And she was like, I really want to see the inside of these houses, but I don't want to go through when people are going to jump out at me. I go, well, we're the only ones here right now. So actually, can I give you a tour? And I I gave Linda Blair a tour through the, uh, through the haunted houses. Yeah. Yeah. She's very nice. That's very cool. That's a very cool story. I've never met Linda Blair. Well, you have plenty of opportunities, let me tell you. You've met her enough for both of us. Yes, I have. So, Jeff. Bill. The worst song ever. Oh, Jeff, there isn't a soul on this planet that doesn't know this song or at the very least doesn't know the keyboard riff that dominates this song we are talking about the song the final countdown from swedish rock group uh europe even though we don't need to let's play the clip I found out today when doing the research, this actually comes from their third album. I didn't know that either. They had won some sort of like Sweden's version of the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> I knew that I knew there was a contest involved in this band somewhere. Yeah. There had to be. I don't know what it is with Sweden and song contests because, I mean, Sweden's right? uh, most ABBA. favorite ex- export there, ABBA. Yeah, they won the Eurovision Song Contest. So anyway, wins this, whatever the song contest is. And actually went on to become more famous than the contest itself, which is something. Very true. Yep. I went and listened to some songs off their first album, and they're not nearly as final countdown-ish as the the album that made them famous. I remember when this was super popular on MTV, and I always wanted, I looked forward to any song that had goofy science fiction in it because I'm a goofy science fiction nerd, so... 
this song, like Pump Up the Volume by Mars with all the science fiction imagery that was in it. That dorky song that was like the sequel to Major Tom. The song Major, Major Tom. Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> by, called Major Tom by, what's that guy's name? Uh, uh, Peter Schilling. Peter Schilling, yeah. So the, this song sort of fell into that into that orbit, for lack of a better description, for me. Ha. And I always sort of looked forward to it coming around. Yep. Even though it was way glamier than I generally listen to. Mm-hmm. I always thought that they they sort of reminded me of in the same way as like do you remember the band Asia? Of course I remember Asia. You remember Asia, right? Yeah. So I always sort of pegged these two bands as like cousins or or like neighbors for some reason. And I I, I can't see that because Asia is a pro no, super group, but <laughs> Yeah. I can't either, but at the time because Maybe because it's they're because they're both named, named after continents. The continents, yeah, it's entirely possible. If there had been another band from like Upper Moldova named Antarctica, and they did, you know, Swedish grunt metal, I'd probably say like they remind me of Asia because of their name. But I always sort of looked forward to this song. It never never registered on my radar as anything other than like, uh, oh, this will be gone soon enough. Yeah, like Aldo Aldo Nova and some of the other songs that we've talked about from this time period. However, they did not. <laughs> they did not. Now, they've, they've got a bunch of records out. They've had 30 singles. None of them have charted here in the United States, except for this one. Well, no, the, the other singles off this album charted. But after after this album, because there was other singles on this album. There was Carrie, Rock the Night, and Cherokee, which we'll get to, because I got some I got some things to say about Final Countdown, too. I can't remember too. any of those songs. No? Oh, wow. I can't remember any of them. Nope. I think you would know Carrie if you heard it, though. But... So the uh, the story of this song is apparently Earth is doomed and they're all going to jump on this like space arc and they're going to go live somewhere else. Right. The second verse says, we're heading for Venus and still we stand tall because maybe they've seen us and will welcome us all. So apparently right. Venus is inhabited by people that can stand atmospheric pressure 80 <laughs> times the <laughs> amount of Earth. And yeah. it's gonna, right. And a surface temperature of 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Now, yeah. the next line says, with so many light years to go and things to be found. Let me tell you something, Joey Tempest. I'm a guy that has a calculator on his desk at work and not much to do on his lunch break. I figured out how many light years it is from Earth to Venus. You know how many it is? None. It takes light eight minutes to get to Venus. <laughs> yep. You are off by many magnitudes, young man. <laughs> Because this band is Swedish, I cut them all kinds of slack for the unusual nature of the lyrical content of yes. that. Yeah. Because if you go and read the lyrics, which I just I did. don't know that it enhances the effect. Yes, I know. <laughs> it reads like someone trying really hard and then putting it through Google Translate in their own language <laughs> and then using an English grammar book to make it make sense, even though some of the words aren't necessarily the right words. Oh, it gets way worse. Because oh, I know it does. A, a couple of songs later uh, on the album is a song called Ninja. And it's seriously, it's a seventh grader like wrote these lyrics and all that. It's like, ooh, tell me the story. Tell me the legend. Tell me the tales of war. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to try and do the Iron Maiden historical, like, you know, literary rock and roll thing, yep. you don't start with ninjas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Also on the same album, uh, like there was the criticism about the whole Venus not being light years away, uh, not even yep. not even a light hour away. Later on, they had a, a, a single called Cherokee, right? And in the video, they had Native Americans riding horses. And I remember somebody writing in to MTV and then reading the letter saying that Cherokees, the Native American uh, tribe of Cherokees, they didn't ride the horses. They used them as beasts of burden, like they would carry stuff, but right. they never rode on top of them. So here's Joey Tempest like, well, I'll just go f- myself then because <laughs> I, well, I, don't, I don't know where Venus is apparently, and I don't know anything about the, the ninjas or the Cherokees. I guess that presages internet commentary about literally anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because someone sat at home and was like, well, you know, actually, that's how, I'm sure that's how that letter started. Yeah. Well, actually. You know? Dear Kurt Loder, I was watching MTV and the <laughs> Europe song Cherokee, and, you know, there's a picture of Indians riding on horses in there. And, you know, actually, Cherokee's like, at, at that point, Kurt Loder's like, that's it. I'm going to go find David Lee Roth and do a mountain of cocaine. <laughs> 
that just <laughs> came in off a boat with 10,000 pounds. So, yeah, uh, this song has become like a punchline. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the TV show Arrested Development, the very horrible magician Joe Bluth would use the the final countdown as his music for whenever he uh, performed his illusions. Yes. And uh, they actually used it in the Geico commercial uh, a couple of years ago as well. I, I remember that too. I remember I remember the first time I heard it in Arrested Development and I, I laughed pretty hard because it's a funny choice for a song. It's silly. Yeah. It's one of those songs that only people from that part kind of age group will really remember. And it's going to make him go, oh, I remember that song. And then no matter what, whatever the hell stupid thing Job tries to do with it fails miserably. It's like, yeah, you know, I remember that uh, song. It makes it funny. It was stupid. <laughs> it was dumb. Yep. I won't lie. I like the song whenever it came out. Yeah, I don't. I like it. Yeah, I was trying to learn how to play keyboards at the time. And, you know, hey, look what I can do. I've actually heard live versions of this song that are really good. Like, right. It, they, the production of it on the album uh, does take a lot away from it. And one last thing about this. I remember the uh, whatever MTV used to show concerts on Saturday nights, they had a concert of Europe. You want to guess what song they opened with? Uh, they, uh, they opened Cherokee. With the, they opened with the final countdown, Jeff. And they also oh. closed with it. They opened yeah, and well, closed you know, with the final countdown, Jeff. You got to do it, man. You never know who's going to come late. <laughs> All right. So, before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question for you. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh (laughs) uh-oh. What was the name of the first novel written in America by an American? Oh, man. This is me clutching at straws here. I'm I'm pretty sure this is going to be incorrect. Okay. But I'm still going to guess anyway. And it's... Let's see. There's the tale of Arthur Gordon Pym... By Edgar Allan Poe. No. <laughs> ah, well, no. there you go. It was it's worth a, a try. It is a book called The Power of Sympathy. It was originally credited to Sarah Wentworth Morton in 1789. Name just uh, rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But here's the deal. She did not write the book. Uh, it was Big actually there. Yeah. It was actually her neighbor, William Hill Brown. And then she took all the credit for it. But now... Uh, now we know that he's the one who wrote it. Huh. So the first novel written in America was a ghost-written novel. Yes. That's my, that's pretty interesting. My ghostly American. I'll have to see if I can find a copy of that book out there somewhere. Well, I'm sure it's around. Well, we do have the internet. It's true. Load up your Netscape and see if you can find it. I will pull out my Opera browser and use <laughs> that. Or potentially, uh, I will go to Ask Jeeves. And see if it can steer me in the right direction. But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, where this week was way better last year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Remember, Robert Hayes from Airplane listens to Twibbly. And I heard he got George Zip to subscribe after Macho Grande.